So this morning, my hope is, as we, as we land the Lord's Prayer um, out of Matthew chapter 6, 13, that I could just take a moment, you could join me, and I'm just going to use the Lord's Prayer as a template to pray for Doxa this morning. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come to you recognizing that you are in heaven, that you keep watch, that all things are under your rule. And we say, along with Joel and Esty and this Doxa core team, we say, holy is your name. May your name be revered by them and by us and by other faithful churches worshiping you and gathering around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We long to see your kingdom and your way, your rule and reign dawn on the hearts of men and women and totally upend our lives. And we pray that that would be true for Joel and Esty and for all those who are served by their church plant. We pray that they would hear you and that your will would be done through this church plant. That people would be reached, that the lost, those who are far from Jesus Christ, would come to know him, come to repent and rejoice in all that he has done for them personally. We pray that you would provide for them, that you would use us to do so, Father. That you would use other faithful churches and individuals to provide for them. That their own core team would begin meeting their needs and that they would see that as a gift from you. As they've been given by you, they then give out of the overflow. Lord, I pray that forgiveness abounds in this church plan. Joel and Esty, as they're developing their ministry and getting their feet underneath them, they will make mistakes. People will be hurt. People will hurt them and turn on them. And we pray that forgiveness abounds across the board. Uh, that grace is a word that is not just by definition only, but there's a culture of graciousness throughout that entire family. Teach them to forgive those who hurt them. And keep Joel and Esty from temptation and all of Satan's schemes, how he means to, to attack and oppose this work that they are doing that's bringing light and helping to deliver people out of darkness and into your marvelous light, Jesus. So keep them from the evil one. All power and all glory and all dominion belongs to you. We pray for them this morning. Keep them, and may we celebrate in a decade or two or three or four at all that you have done through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. I don't often do this, but this morning I'm going to start uh, my message with a quote from a man named David Mathis. David, uh, he's the a seminary, he's a, a, the president for the seminary um, at it's Bethlehem uh, Seminary, John Piper's Seminary in Minneapolis. He's an author and a pastor as well. He's written a book called Habits of Grace, and we're in a sermon series called Rhythms of Grace. We're looking at spiritual disciplines, the keys, some of the keys to spiritual formation. And so I don't know if you've caught this or not, but each week uh, I'm opening these messages with a, a short little uh, just kind of statement or, um, or look at what spiritual formation is, how it should affect us, and how we should think about it. And so this morning I want to read uh, what he has written in his book on the spiritual disciplines. He says this in Habits of Grace's book, The grace of God is on the loose. Contrary to our expectations, counter to our assumptions, Frustrating our judicial sentiments or what we believe is just and right 
and mocking our craving for control, the grace of God is turning the world upside down, or maybe we would say right side up. God is shamelessly pouring out his lavish favor on undeserving sinners of all stripes and thoroughly stripping away our self-sufficiency. Selah. Think about that for a moment. What is God doing? He is pouring out his lavish favor. That's grace. Undeserved favor. Undeserved merit. God is pouring out his lavish favor on who? Undeserving Sinners, those who are not deserving of his favor, not deserving of his forgiveness, that's who he is pouring it out on. All stripes, he's thoroughly stripping away our self-sufficiency. Then he goes on to say, it is in this endless sea of God's grace that we walk the path of the Christian life, and we take steps, hear this, of grace-empowered effort and initiative. It works something like this, he says. I can flip a switch, but I don't provide the electricity. I can turn on a faucet, but I don't provide, I don't make the water flow. There will be no light and there will be no liquid refreshment without someone else providing it. And so it is for the Christian with the ongoing grace of God. His grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. You hear that? We don't control the supply. We can't make the favor of God flow, but he has given us circuits to connect and pipes to open expectantly. There are paths along which he has promised his favor. Our God is lavish in his grace. He's free to liberally dispense his goodness without even the least bit of cooperation and preparation on our part, and often he does. But hear this, he also has his regular channels, and we can routinely avail ourselves of these revealed paths of blessing or neglect them to our detriment. End quote. One of God's regular paths, regular channels, revealed path of blessing for us is prayer. It's a rhythm. Prayer is a rhythm that you and I practice and we give ourselves to. And how do we do so? We do so by his undeserved favor upon us. Jesus has made the way for us to love and to understand the Father. And so we come to him in prayer. So this morning, uh, we are looking at the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' disciples came to him and asked him, hey, will you teach us to pray? And Jesus said, okay, when you pray, pray then like this. And he gives us a template for how to pray. And, he, and the expectation, I believe, is that this would become a, a rhythm of our everyday lives, that, that this prayer would, uh, would, would so encompass the ways that we pray, that it would shape the ways that we pray. This is what he gave them. Our Father in heaven heaven, hallowed or holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, that is provide for us, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So this morning as we close, we're looking specifically at verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or you'll see a little footnote in the ESV Bibles around the room. It's on page 761. If you've got a black Bible around you and you want to engage, I'm going to ask you to this morning. You'll see that footnote, and that footnote says evil one. Protect us from the evil one, which I'll get into in a little bit. But as we read verse uh, 13, and as we train our eyes on what it says in verse 13, as we train ourselves to pray, it should, it should, to some degree, shock our sensibilities. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation. Wait, 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 wait. Does that mean that you lead us into temptation? Is that what 
Is that what this is teaching? That God himself leads us toward temptation. There's an interpretive principle that we use as we approach the Bible, and it's this. Anytime you open a Bible, we need to understand that every word is connected to the words around it. It's connected to the sentences around it, and those sentences are connected to the paragraphs that they're embedded within, and those paragraphs are in, embedded within different thoughts, and those thoughts are embedded within chapters, and those chapters are embedded within books. Those books are embedded within the New Testament or the Old Testament and the Old Testament and the New Testament are embedded in one canon. So the interpretive, uh, the interpretive principle is this. We never pull verses out of their context, but when we come to verses that are unclear or passages that are unclear and that we're wrestling with, wait, 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 what does this mean? We want to go to the most clear passages in Scripture in order to bring light to the passages that are less clear. Does that make sense? This is uh, an interpretive principle. So as he says, and lead us not into temptation, the word for temptation there is a Greek word. It's parasmos. I'm going to come back to that. You don't necessarily need to know it or memorize it, but I want you to know that this Greek word is repeated in these verses that I am going to unpack for you in just a moment. This word parasmos, it can be translated temptation. It can also be, uh, be translated testing as well. And it, essentially what it means is an examination with the express purpose of producing faults in the examinee or revealing faults in the examinee. So as we're asking this question, wait, does God lead us? Is he the one that takes us into temptation? The scripture, specifically the New Testament, has some very acute passages that answer this question for us. Go to page 950 in the Black Bibles around the room or James in your New Testament, chapter 1, verses 13. 13 and 14. I'm not putting them up on the screen because I want you to interact with God's Word in front of you. If you're new with us and don't have a Bible, but now you're holding one of those black Bibles, it belongs to you. Write your name on it. No strings attached. We want you to have it. It's our gift to you. Page 950 in the black Bibles, James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. James is the brother of Jesus, by the way, who eventually worshiped him, which should say something about Jesus's identity. Let no one say when he is parasmos, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. That's pretty explicit. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself, what? Tempts no one. But, there's a purpose clause here, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So when is a person tempted? When we are lured and enticed by the desire within us. Does, according to James here, does God tempt anyone? No, he does not. And he himself is not tempted with evil. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.13. This may be a verse that's familiar to you. Using the same word that Jesus uses and lead us not into temptation. These are the same words the Apostle Paul is using here on page 900 in the Black Bibles. 1 Corinthians 10.13. The parasmos, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he, God, will show you a way out so, what? So that we can endure. Perhaps most clearly here, page 782 in the Black Bibles, Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. 
Jesus is just hours away from being arrested and going to the cross. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be brutally executed by the Romans who are doing so on behalf of the religious rulers in Israel. And he's bringing his disciples along with him. He's in incredible anguish in this moment. And right before he's about to be arrested and betrayed, he calls them to prayer and he says this, keep watch, stay awake, and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. And he says, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Jesus has an understanding. Our spirits are willing to do the right thing, but our bodies want sleep when it's late at night. Our bodies are weak. We recognize, and Jesus, the God-man, recognizes that there is war going on in each of us. We are all mixed bags of motivation. We don't know. We do know. We are confused often. It's our body. It's our flesh. It's that carnal nature, those internal desires within us that are weak and that reach out and grab a hold of the things that that tempt us. God regularly, he takes us to the brink with various trials that we endure. And on the front end, you know this, we don't think oftentimes that we can endure. And so we freak on the inside. We have a bit of a meltdown, either internally or externally. But on the back end of our trials and our temptations, we recognize oftentimes that we actually survived, right? We have these experiences. Um, I know it doesn't look like it, but I work out three, three to four times a week. Um, and the, the kind of uh, exercise that I do, it's like these high-intensity workouts, and often they're preceded by strength training and stuff like that. And I haven't really, I've not been a very, uh, I'm athletic, but I haven't, I've let myself go, let's just say, over the last two decades. And so, um, that's a long time, by the way. Um, and so, yeah, right? Uh, So oftentimes I'll come to these classes on the front end of these workouts and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. I don't know to what extent I'll be able to endure. But what I often recognize through these workouts, through these exercises, is I accomplish, I lift more, I perform better than I often think I will on the front end. And lo and behold, I don't die and I make it through. So oftentimes, we, uh, we, we, we don't think that we can endure, but the human will, uh, the Spirit of God working within us, often moves us far beyond we, what we actually believe that we can do. Now remember what the Apostle Paul just said about temptation in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. He said, the Father won't allow our temptations to be more than you, that's both singular and plural, simultaneously at that time. He's speaking to a community, but also individuals within the community. The Father will not allow you to that temptation to be more than you can stand. Not more than you think you can stand, but more than you can stand. And he says, when you're tempted, who? He, the Father, will show you us a way out. Why? So that we can endure. Now, we see tempting. We see trials, testing throughout the scriptures. But what we never see, what we never see in the Bible is God cruelly and mercilessly crushing people. You don't see this in the scriptures. You do not see the Father cruelly and mercilessly crushing people. Time and time again, he warns. 
Time and time again, he gives second chances. Time and time again, he sustains you and I, people, through very, very, very challenging circumstances. Many of you in the room, the person in your chair, are a testimony to God's faithfulness through brutal times in your life. Maybe there is health crisis for you. You've, been, you've had diagnosis that has you completely under the weather emotionally, and you don't know what to do with what the doctors have just told you. Or maybe they're just making you wait. But meanwhile, you are in incredible pain, and you can't figure it out, and you don't have the answers. And it is not just frustrating, but it's brutal for you. Maybe those of you in the room, you have, you have injuries that you are suffering from and you don't know what the future looks like for you. You want so badly to be out of this injured state and yet time must go under the bridge for healing to occur and it's frustrating to you and it's difficult to you. Thinking about other things going on, financial strains. You don't know how transitions at work are going to work for you. You don't know how the bills are going to be paid. Perhaps the money going out is greater than the money that is coming in, and just penciling does not work at all. And so you're under distress. And some of that might be by your own hand because you've been irresponsible with your finances, but some of that might just be the circumstances of life, and you are caught and you are in a tough place and you are eking it out right now as you're seeking to provide for yourself or those around you. Perhaps you're in relational conflict. That's common for us. Family drama, moms, dads, brothers, sisters, spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, people around you that you work with. There's just tension and relational conflict. It's like you were surfing a good wave, you've fallen off the wave, and now you're in that roller, and you don't know which end is up right now. If you've ever been caught in a wave like that, you know that seconds can feel like hours when you don't know what is up from down when you're underwater. It can be a brutal time. And so in, in, internally, del- like there's this compulsion, deliver me. And, and for those of us who are believers in the Lord, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from what is happening. While the Bible is clear that God tempts no one in order to make them fail, God does test his people. And we need to understand this. He doesn't test us in order to crack us. But he does test us in order to refine and strengthen our faith in him. The testing has specific purpose. It is not arbitrary, and it does not exist to just make you stronger in general. There's a saying that I have loved that's, that's particularly relevant over this last weekend, and it goes like this. Good timber, trees, good timber does not grow with ease. The stronger the wind, the stronger the trees. So as the winds come, as adversity comes, the trees bend and they flex and they develop strength. Otherwise, they crack and they go down. Now, that saying in the mouth of someone who's agnostic, atheist, uh, Buddhist, Christian, just doesn't care, whatever, uh, that, that, that phrase, it, the principles are true, the principles are sound, but there's not a specific point. It could be said by anybody. Now, when our faith, when the faith of followers of Jesus is tested, there's a specific reason. It's employed by God, used by the Holy Spirit to strengthen our faith and thereby declare the glory of God. 
The purpose of your strength and faith isn't so that you would be awesome. Ultimately, the purpose of your strength and faith is so that God himself would be made much of and glorified. The Lord Jesus Christ would be seen as he is, glorious. But you and I know that when we get in on that, things go well for us. Our own souls, maybe circumstances don't go well, but our own souls are filled and there's a sense of satisfaction. So oftentimes the Lord will sweep our legs out from under us so that we might be so that we might uh, be caught and held fast by God and to know who it is that holds us, to know that we have fallen to him and into him. There's a song that I love. It's called, it's called He Will Hold Me Fast. And part of the, 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 the first verse of this song, it goes like this. When I fear my faith may fail, Christ will hold me fast. We're going to begin singing it as a church family. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. This is the truth that the scriptures declare. When I feel my faith may fail, Christ Jesus will hold me fast. So when we pray and when we ask God not to lead us into temptation, we pray and ask that he would keep us from unfaithfulness to him in the midst of our temptation. And what do we do? We go in obedience to where he leads us with trusting faith that he will hold us fast and that he will provide for us. So even when our faith is shaky, we follow him. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher in London in the 1800s, said, Mighty prayer has often been produced by mighty trial. Mighty prayer has often been produced by mighty trial. Maybe these temptations, these trials, this testing that you're undergoing right now, it's for the purpose of producing prayerful dependence. Like J.J. said last week, that we would unlearn self-reliance. Perhaps that's what this is all about, that we have lived as functional atheists to this point. But it's time to live as obedient followers of Jesus. I think about Abraham and Isaac, and when I think about testing in the Old Testament, um, go to page, uh, if you would, go to page 15 in the Black Bibles, Genesis chapter 22. It's the first book in your Bible, if you have one, or on your app, if you're looking that way. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 15. I'm going to give very limited commentary here, but I just want to read uh, this story of Abraham as God, has, God tells him to, uh, to offer up his only son, his promised son, as a sacrifice, which is something that we never see um, in Scripture before that or after it until a coming day when Jesus Christ himself is given. I should probably go there myself. I told you guys all to go there, and I'm just yapping up here. Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God had just given Abraham promise that he would be the father of many nations. He sustained him. He's continued to tell him that he will have a son, even though the Bible says that Abraham and his wife Sarah are about as good as dead. They're in their 90s, literally. After these things, God tested. See that word, tested? He tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you, as a burnt offering, your own son. Think about it for a moment. It's repulsive. So God rose early in the morning. I'm sorry, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. These things take time. And arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, 
Three days. This is a long journey. This is not short stuff here. Think about the anguish in Abraham's heart as he's trying to understand what's about to occur. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. He looked ahead. He saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. So Isaac carried the wood of his own sacrifice. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, Abraham did. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Something stinks here. That's what he's trying to allude to. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Imagine what's going through his head and heart in this moment. So they went, both of them, together. This is, these are real people. These are not just fables of old. These are real historical people who have lived. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, and look at this, and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Imagine that struggle. Imagine the pleading. Imagine the misunderstanding. Imagine the tears in the eyes. Imagine the submission a son to his father. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But, there's always good news coming after the word but in the scriptures. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you are. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. This has always kind of perplexed me because I'm like, well, uh, sure, he's the God of miracles, but I think there might also be natural descriptions. I wasn't there, obviously. But uh, when, when, a, when an animal, um, when their horns or their antlers get caught in something, oftentimes they'll thrash and they'll wear themselves out. They'll eventually just exhaust themselves and then they'll die in that moment. It could be that this ram was previously caught, but he had exhausted himself and he was there the entire time, but Abraham and his son hadn't seen him. Just one hypothesis. It's totally an aside. He sees this ram caught in a thicket by his horns and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Through his obedience, Abraham's faith was strengthened. And it was strengthened through the test and after the test. Charles Spurgeon again, how happy are tried Christians afterwards. Isn't that the truth? How happy are tried Christians afterwards. We hate trials, and we try with everything in us to escape them. But then after the rain and after the fog dissipates, and we catch glimpses of the lush growth, oftentimes we would say, we've said ourselves, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it. Worst time of my life, worst moment of my life, but I see God's purposes in it. Now, some of us, we may, that may not be our response even to this day, things that have happened in the past, and we would say, Mm-mm, I would trade it. Absolutely, Jared, I would trade that. There is freedom and there is room for you to be honest with what you have and who you are before the Lord. 
He understands you, he knows you, and he is with you. And yet in your heart, in all of our hearts, as we endure suffering and trial, this prayer, don't lead us to fail you, God. I want out of the trial, but even more, the heart of the follower of Jesus should say, I want to be faithful to you. And so there's application for us as we endure trials and we endure testing, and it's this, beware of beginnings. Beware of beginnings. If you don't take the first step into your temptation, you will not take the second. If you don't take the first step, you won't take the third. Beware of beginnings. It's rare that you and I are oblivious in our own minds as to what we're about to do as we're about to give into temptation. Here's what I mean by that. We know what we're doing so oftentimes. There's that still small voice within or about us as we're about to say something, a cutting word or something like that. That still small voice says, don't, don't do it. Or we're about to make that, that splurge and that purchase, and there's this, ah, I don't think you should. Or we're about to spread or, or feast on some tasty morsel of gossip about somebody who is an acquaintance to us or a mutual friend, and that voice says, don't. Don't do it. Don't go there. Beware of the first step and respond in prayer in obedience. Help me to honor you, Lord. The scriptures teach us to take these temptations, these tempting thoughts and desires prisoner, and to submit them to Jesus Christ. Lead us not into temptation, Lord, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. Jesus uses a literary device called a parallel, a parallelism. Um, to and a parallelism, what it does is the second part of a statement will often give interpretive clues to the very first. So as he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us to deliver us from the evil one, Jesus is essentially summing it up saying, we don't want to sin against you, so deliver us from the evil one. Jesus is teaching his disciples and us as we pray to request that we be protected and delivered from the evil one. The ESV, the English Standard Version, the black ones around the room, they translate this, this verse, but deliver us from evil, but it can also be translated, deliver us from the evil one. The basic idea here is the Greek word for evil, it's this word paneros. JJ said panera last week. I was thinking of that, I'm like, man, that sounds awful familiar. Some of you feel like that's evil, that's the evil place. I think it's a fantastic place. Because bread, basic, the basic idea here is the Greek word, this paneros, it's actually, it's not a natural word. It's not a natural noun, or I'm sorry, it's not a neutral noun. It's a masculine noun, which means it's got gender assigned to it. Now, often this noun, so sometimes we'll call ships or we'll call the church she, a noun with a, with a gender, a female gender feminine gender. This word has a male gender attached to it on a regular uh, basis, and it, particularly in reference to the evil one or Satan himself. So Jesus in John chapter 17, as he's praying to the Father, he's asking the Father to protect the disciples, and he says, I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from Paneros, that you would keep them from the evil one. So no matter how we translate this word, to ask God to keep us from doing evil, it's similar to asking him to keep us from the influence and from the attacks of the evil one. 
I prefer evil one because it sums up that he is opposed to God and that all evil comes from Satan himself as the opponent and enemy of God. John Stott, a theologian and pastor uh, in the 20th century, said, perhaps we could paraphrase the whole request as, do not allow us to be so led into temptation that it overwhelms us, but rescue us from the evil one. So behind these words that Jesus gave us to pray are the implications that the devil is too strong for us, that we are too weak to stand up to him, but that our Heavenly Father will deliver us if we call upon him. To pray this in our own words, it might sound like, deliver us from the devil's onslaughts, Father. Don't don't lead me into, us into such a place of severe testing that it will produce faults in me and cause me to sin against you or to abandon you, to walk away from you. Jesus is teaching his disciples and thereby us as we read the word to pray for protection and provision from the devil's abuses. Any way he can, Satan tries to isolate us from God and pick us apart. And he exploits our desires and whispers lies to us. Satan tempts us to take the bait on his hook. Do we have any fishermen in the room? I'm terrible. You guys are all terrible too because nobody's just shooting your hand up. Nobody wants to admit it. So when you're going, when you're, when you're, when you're fishing, you probably as a fisherman don't care all that much about the bait. But what do you want to do? You want to tune the bait to be the kind of bait that's going to be attractive to certain kinds of fish. And not all kinds of fish go to the same bait. And so in order to catch those fish, we put a bait out there that will be attractive to them. But what do we do? We hide a hook within it. And that's how we can pull fish up out of the water. This guy, uh, Thomas Brooks, he's a Puritan in the, eight, in the 1600s. In 1652, he wrote um, a little book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Precious, uh, precious Strategies essentially, against Satan's devices. And this is what he wrote. Satan's first strategy or device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup and hide the poison, to present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. By this strategy, by this device, he deceived our first parents, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die if you eat of the tree, for God does know that in the day you eat of it, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Brooks goes on to say, Your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods. Here's the bait, the sweet, the pleasure, the profit. Oh, he writes, but he hides the hook, the shame, the wrath, and the loss that would certainly follow. The serpent convinced our first parents in the garden to believe him and to unfollow God, to forsake God as Lord. In effect, the serpent said, follow me, not him, follow me. Brooks would go on to say, he presented Adam and Eve a meal and then robbed them of paradise. Lost their entire birthright over a meal. Jesus teaches us to acknowledge our need as well for the Father's protection and his strength, that we would resist baited hooks that would drag us off to misery and death. Most, if not all, of our own addictions were begun in temptation in a moment when we said yes. So here's a question for you and I. What's your bait? It's going to look different than the person next to you. So we don't get to condemn people because we can resist what they cannot. 
because each of us is fighting our own struggle and is wired to be tempted from internal desires within us that are different from one another. And so there's not room for judgment and looking down our nose at one another. But what is it? What is your bait? Is it wealth? Is it upward mobility and freedom? Is it control? You want to control outcomes and people and situations? Is it pleasure? Is it sexual? Is it the approval of men and women around you, people around you? Maybe it's self-glory. Maybe it's companionship. What's the temptation for you? What's the bait that Satan is hiding his hook in? Satan is a student, and he hides his hooks. We need to know this and not be unaware of his schemes to take us out and to make us stray. Now, Jesus taught us that we would be tempted and tried in this life. And he himself was tempted and tried in incredible ways. And he comforts us with these words. He comforts his disciples with these words. Take heart. I have what? Overcome the world. The sense of world as Jesus uses it in that verse and that phrase is all that is opposed, the summary of all that is opposed to God. He has overcome the world. He has overcome all of Satan's temptations. You'll remember at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he's led into the wilderness to, to be uh, tempted by Satan. And Satan tempts him in three distinct ways. Jesus, he's fasting, which we're going to get into next week, which is not unattached to prayer. So we're going to continue to explore prayer together as a church. But Jesus Christ is fasting. And the scriptures teach us that he was fasting from food and water for around 40 days, literally at the brink of physical death. He's literally starving. And one of the ways in which Satan tempts him is tell these stones to become bread. I know you're hungry. Serve yourself. Follow me. And Jesus resists him by the strength the Spirit and the Father provide him. A second temptation, Satan comes to Jesus. He, he shows him all of the, the glory and the, and the kingdoms of the world. He says, bow down before me and worship me. And Jesus resists him. Satan promised to give him his power and his influence, and Jesus resisted. And then this third temptation, Satan comes to Jesus and he says, obey me, do a miracle, throw yourself down off this cliff, call your angels, I know, I know you can. Prove to me that you have the Father's blessing. Prove to me that you can do it. And Jesus resists him. And then the scriptures teach us in Luke's gospel, chapter 4, I think verse 19, he says that Satan left him, quote, until an opportune time. And then many, many, many opportune times would continue to come through Jesus' earthly ministry as Satan would oppose him through the religious rulers and through the Romans and through the crowds and through those who were demonically oppressed. Jesus was pressed on all sides. And eventually Satan would again tempt Jesus. And Jesus would be in a garden, in the garden of Gethsemane, saying, Father, take this cup from me. No, not my will, but your will be done. But this time, Jesus, the true and better Adam, would also, as he's tempted in the garden, as these pressures have taken effect on him, as he falls to the ground, uh, tempted to wave the white flag. Father, take this cup from me. No, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, this true and better Adam, would pass the test in the garden and keep his father's will. 
And Jesus is the true and he's the better Isaac as well, who not only carried the wood, the cross on his back for his own sacrifice and was offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for each one of us. While God said to Abraham, now that I know you love me because you have not withheld your only son from me, we can say at the foot of the cross, Father, we know that you love us because you have not withheld your only son from us as a means of redemption. We know that you love us. We know that you are ours. And so our response as this truth dawns on us is to trust and worship Jesus Christ, to obey his every command, and to follow him as we pray. Our Father, join me, hallowed be in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we love you. Teach us to pray this prayer to entrust ourselves to you, to embed this truth deep within our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.